Let's open our Bible to um, Mark chapter 9. Instead of rereading, because I'm going to go through this um, verse by verse and then um, really do a, a study that deals with the conflict of emotion, um, the deceptiveness of the human heart, especially as it pertains to when we find our emotions and feelings being in conflict with what this book teaches. And it's going to be one of the main points of our study this morning. So let's go where Paul read for us earlier. I've entitled this, Help My Unbelief. At this time, I would like something put on screen, which is really the thrust of our study this morning. So um, you're familiar with this. And um, the bulk of our study is the reality of um, hell and the reality of heaven and the dangers of not speaking about it um, for fear of people thinking you're strange or whatever. But this morning, I had to go back to get the script, uh, some of the quotes. I couldn't go forward because in the church today, they've gotten so far away from um, dealing with the subject of hell uh, that you just can't find it. So... Um, I had to go backwards to get any good, solid, biblical warnings of uh, this place at the Bible, and Jesus spoke more about than any. So as we look at our text this morning, let's go to Mark 9, verse 14, and the background to this is Peter, James, and John had just descended with Jesus from the Mount of Transfiguration. It doesn't tell us that this is the bottom of the hill, but it just says, and when he had come to his disciples. So what had just happened is Moses and Elijah had appeared to Peter, James, and John, and the Lord was glorified, and um, they talked about it all the way coming down the hill. Now where this is taking place, it doesn't exactly tell us, It simply says, when he had come to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and the scribes disputing with them. And immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to meet him and greeting him. Um, The other nine disciples were not up on the mountain. Uh, They were at the bottom of this hill somewhere. And evidently there was a great commotion that was going on over the inability of the disciples to cast out this demon. Now, up until this time, uh, this was not an issue. Um, The Lord had given them that authority. And one of the things that, as I go through uh, Mark this time, is there's not a chapter that goes by that doesn't deal with this subject of demon possession. But this one is a little bit different because of their inability to deal with casting this demon out of this um, son of this man. Verse 17, um, verse 16, the Lord says, and asks the scribes, well, what are you discussing with them? And then one from the multitude answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And... Uh, as we read this, and whenever he seizes him, he throws him down. This is very graphic. 
He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast him out, but they couldn't. And answered and said to him, and here in verse 19, there is actually um, a frustration on the Lord's part. But let's just dwell on what's taking place. We have a demon, and he is tormenting um, this uh, son, and we're going to read in just a little bit that this has been going on since he was a child. And I don't want, I don't want to soft soak this at all this morning. I want this to, to um, really sort of set in. He's foaming at the mouth. He's gnashing at his teeth. He becomes rigid. And the disciples uh, really can't do anything about it. If you're taking notes this morning, uh, the reality of the demonic realm in John 10, verse 10, tells us that Jesus said the thief, in other words, another name for the devil, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. There is a demonic realm. This is their reason for being, to steal, to kill, and destroy. But then the Lord says, I have come that they might have life and that they even might have it more abundantly. We also learned that um, there's not only a heaven, but there's a hell. Why is there a hell? Well, the Lord tells us that hell was created for the devil and his angels. They are eternal beings. Um, Revelation chapter 12 tells us someday there's going to be a war in heaven between Michael and his angels and the devil and his angels. And that um, the de- Michael is going to be victorious and the devil and his angels are going to be cast to the earth. Uh, We know this is exactly right in the middle of um, uh, the tribulation period because it says the devil comes down to you with great wrath knowing he has but a short time. That short time is three and a half years. And he goes after the woman who is is Israel. Bottom line with all this, you know, between everyday life, uh, there is demonic activity that you may or may not be aware of. And it is constant and it's continual. Some of it is obvious, invisible, such as the case is here. And it's been going on for a long, long time. And in this case, uh, the, the disciples uh, were unable to cast the demon out. So the Lord said, O faithless generation, how long shall I bear with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Now he's, he's looking at his disciples and he's chiding them. There's no compassion here. And um, he's frustrated because where's your faith? And where's your, your ability to take authority in this situation? I find that the only thing that um, for me uh, gives me boldness, courage, and authority, and it's going to be the theme of two Two main things this morning. One is prayer, and the other is the knowledge of the book that you're holding in your lap. And both are essential. Faith comes by hearing, good place for an amen. And hearing comes by the word of God. To take authority in a situation like this, you have to be prayed up. And that's what the Lord is going to say. But you also have to be filled up 
with a knowledge of the scriptures to know exactly who's in charge and who has authority. The Bible says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But we have a lot of passive Christians today. Number one, they're not prayed up. And number two, they don't know the word of God. It's been softened down, especially the subject as we get into the reality of just how horrible and eternal hell actually is. And we'll be getting, be getting there eventually. So back to verse 20 now. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. There was immediate reaction to the presence of Jesus. And he fell on the ground. Again, it's descriptive. Wallowed. He's foaming at the mouth. And he asked the father, well, how long has this happened to him? And he says, from a childhood. I mean, this has been going on. We don't know his age. But this has been a continuing event for this tormented kid since he was a child and often he was thrown both into the fire uh, into the water to destroy him what did I say earlier the thief comes but to steal kill and destroy he says if you can do anything please have compassion on us and help us and Jesus said to him if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes and immediately, there's that word again in Mark, immediately the father of the child cried out and he said with tears, now the emotion, and I, I see this, the, oh, the hope that possibly that this is gonna come to an end after all this time. And the Lord is telling him, just believe. I could just, I'm put, trying to put myself in this guy's sandals and say, I believe, I believe, I believe. But at the same time, Lord, help my unbelief with this because of what's at stake. Lord, I believe, but will you please help my unbelief? And Jesus saw that the people came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. So the Lord not only casts him out, Um, but in casting him out with tears, he says, come out and don't come back. And he said it with authority. Now this don't come back stuff is part of the authority that Jesus had. Remember when when the, the devil tempted the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights? Well, it says the devil left him until a more convenient time with the idea that he would come back and uh, be challenging the Lord uh, once, once again. But here, the command was explicit. You come out, and you don't return. And um, he had the authority to do so, and that's what happened. Verse 26, then his spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly. And so we just have, uh, again, put, allow this to... Um, penetrate what's going on in this man's body and came out of him and he became one as dead. He was so physically spent by the the torment of this demon that he had just collapsed into, uh, they, they thought he had died. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and arose and now it's one on one time with the disciples. They pull him aside. They don't get it. 
We've had no problems with this before, Lord. We had authority. The demons were subject to us. And when he had come, verse 28, into the house, his disciples asked him privately, so this is a private conversation, why couldn't we do this, Lord? What's up with this one? And Jesus said to him, this kind comes out by nothing but prayer and fasting. There's an implication here. What's being implied is that there are different degrees of power and authority, not only in the demonic realm, but also in the angelic realm. And I just want to take a moment and back that up with scripture. If you're taking notes, you can write down Ephesians 6, which says, as Christians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood and against principalities and against powers. They're both demonic. One is greater than the other. One's a principality, one's a power that we wrestle against. Against the rulers of darkness of this age, that's why the devil is called the god of this world, against a spiritual host, that's a lot, (laughs) of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians. Colossians 1, 16 says, for by him, that's Jesus, All things were created that are in heaven, that are in the earth, whether you can see them or not, visible or invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions, and here it is again, or principalities and powers. All things were created through him and for him. That's why every time a demon-possessed man runs into Jesus, they say, we know who you are. You're, You're the son of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? Without exception, this case too. As soon as the demon sees Jesus, there's an immediate a reaction uh, that, that takes place. Give me an example of this. Let's go to um, um, prayer. And sometimes in, the, in this realm, um, we have spiritual warfare. So let's turn to the book of Daniel, Old Testament, Chapter 10, I'll give you a little bit of time to get back there. Daniel chapter 10. I did a little research here. Um, Cyrus, and chapter 10 in the third year of Cyrus. Cyrus would have been the first one that when Babylon was conquered, uh, he would have been the first one, and Daniel was the one to meet him. And Daniel goes up and actually shows his name in the scriptures. And what we have here in chapter 10 is probably one of the better examples of spiritual warfare. And the information that that we don't realize uh, how valuable the information is that we have. Boy, I wish I could get sidetracked here. We get caught up with the market going up, the market going down, How's our 401k doing? Um, And we spend a lot of time thinking about such things and what's really important and what's really valuable. The information here is so vital that Daniel wants to know about that there will be spiritual warfare. It's about prayer. It's dated in the third year of Cyrus. So chapter 10 actually takes place before chapter 9. And what Daniel is praying about 
That information the devil does not want you to have. Because I believe Daniel chapter nine is one of the most important Bible prophecies in the entire Bible. Why? Because it tells us to the very day that the Messiah is going to come. And that information he does not want you to know. So, but this is before that, and Daniel's praying. So I'm just gonna sort of explain the first uh, nine verses. Um, Daniel uh, is in Persia. Um, His name is called Belteshazzar. And it says in verse two that he was mourning for three full weeks. Well, why was he mourning? It says he ate, he's fasting too. He ate no pleasant food, uh, no meat, no wine came into his mouth. He didn't take a bath. He didn't shower for three full weeks. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, he has this vision. And he has an angel uh, appear to him, and it completely wipes Daniel out. He's already physically weak from not eating for, for three full weeks. So what's going on here? Daniel was used to praying and having his prayer answered. Remember when the edict was given? All the wise men are going to die because you can't make known the dream in Daniel chapter 2. Well, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're part of the wise men. And Daniel says, hold on, <laughs> not so quick. and just, just give me a little bit of time. So he calls for a prayer meeting with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the Lord gives him it just like that. And that's what I believe Daniel was used to. Well, he's praying, and he's not getting an answer. Why? Well, we pick it up in verse 10 because there's spiritual warfare going on. The information that Daniel is about to receive is so vital, has, has captured the attention and given pause, it certainly did for me, that the Bible's different than any other book because of prophecy, and this one in particular. So we read in verse 10, then suddenly a hand touched me and made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for I have been sent to you. And while he was speaking the word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day, see the Lord heard him the first time, and an angel was dispatched immediately, that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God. God heard your words, and I have come because of your words. Everybody following this? Daniel prays, the Lord hears, he dispatches the answer at the, at the very first day. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, now we have an entity on the demonic side that evidently in authority and power is greater than the messenger that's being sent out. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. 21 days is three weeks. That's how long Daniel's waiting. Waiting, Lord. I prayed you always show up. You always talk to me. Why aren't you talking to me? All right, I'll try fasting. And still that didn't work. Well, there was spiritual warfare going on in a realm 
that he did not understand until we read it here. And behold, Michael. Now, Michael is one of the archangels. Here he's called the, the chief, one of the chief princes. He came to help me. Now, again, what's being implied here is this demon that the disciples couldn't cast out can only come out through prayer and fasting. Evidently, um, he was a heavyweight. I don't know how to say it in any other words. The disciples said, Lord, why, why couldn't we do this one? Well, this, this, this one's different. This one only comes out through prayer and fasting. What is Daniel doing? He's praying. He's fasting. So the, the Lord sends the warrior, Michael. And this is the same Michael that's going to show up in Revelation chapter 12 and has the final, I call them angel wars, that will put an end uh, to demonic activity on planet Earth eventually. For I would have been left alone there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to you and your people, notice, in the latter days. This was going to be a prophecy. Daniel's going to write it down. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. I believe it is the first coming of the Lord. And probably more information than that, that Daniel writes down in Daniel chapter 11 about the Antichrist, um, Antioch Epiphanes, and he, all this information Daniel wrote down that he had received from the Lord. There's a war, and the war is over you hearing the word of God. Um, let's just use the parable of the sower for an example. Jesus said the word of God is like going out and you know, sowing a field. And the first place it falls is on hard ground. And then comes the devil and takes the word out of your heart lest they would believe and be saved. So you're witnessing to somebody and I usually tell somebody, I take them right to this verse. This is what's going to happen next. I would like to tell you everything's gonna be fine but what the Bible teaches is now there's gonna be demonic activity that's actually gonna try to undo what you just did. By believing the word that can save you, something's gonna come up in your life that's going to cause you to have that taken away from you. So it begins right when you hear the gospel for the first time. What's the warfare over? This book and, and, um, and how a person can be saved. So there's other examples of that, but what we have here is prayer is connected in fasting for Michael to show up and the message eventually to get, get through. And it causes me to wonder. Um, this morning I'd like to look at the importance of prayer, both from the Old Testament and from the New. Let's begin with the Old, and let's go back to, I'll, I'll just use two examples from the Old Testament. Let's go to 1 Kings uh, chapter 17. Give you a moment to get there. like to hear those Bible pages turning. If you don't have a Bible, grab one and front where you're sitting. We're just going to read one verse from Jeremiah, I'm Jeremiah, 1 Kings chapter 17. The setting is um, Ahab is the king in Israel. Elijah is the prophet in Israel. Uh, Jezebel is Ahab's wife. She introduces Baal worship to, to Israel. So we read in verse 1, and Elijah the Tishbite 
of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now my Bible has James 5.17 underneath it along with Luke 4.25. What that tells us is what um, Jesus actually verifies that this time frame was a three and a half year period of time, both in uh, Luke 4, but also in James 5. Go to chapter 18, verse 41 of 1 Kings. Verse 41, I should say. Three and a half years have passed from the time that he said that, from chapter 17 to 18. It has not rained in three and a half years. Now we read, then Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Of course, preceding this is a big showdown on Mount Carmel, and the God that answers by fire, let's worship that God. So they called out to Baal all day long, nothing happened. Elijah gets up, has a simple prayer, said, Lord, show them who's God. Fire falls, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the... The stone consumes the water, and the people all said, the Lord, he is God. Now, they take the prophets, verse 40, down to the brook, and he has all 400 of them put to death. And then, Elijah said to Ahab, verse 41, go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. He said that when there wasn't a cloud in the sky. So Ahab went up to eat and drink and Elijah went to the top of Carmel and he bowed down on the ground and he put his face between his knees and said to his servants, go up now and look towards the sea. Now for those of you who've been there and we go to this, um, um, this platform where from it you can see the Mediterranean, uh, you can see all the way across the valley to Nazareth And in front of you, you have the Valley of Armageddon. It's quite a spectacular view. But from there, we usually point out, this is Carmel, and you could actually uh, see the Mediterranean. And so he, he tells his guy to go and look towards the sea. So I went and looked. There's nothing. And seven times, Elijah prayed. He was persistent in his in his praying. And it came to pass the seventh time that he said, well, there's a cloud out there. It's a small one, about the size of my hand, rising out of the sea. So Elijah said, that's it. Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. And now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. The importance of prayer. Well, you say, yeah, well, I'm not Elijah. We're talking about Elijah here. You know, the guy that's that's calling down fire from heaven. I'm afraid I'm just not in the same playing field as an Elijah. Oh, really? What does the Bible say about that? Well, in James chapter 5, if you're taking notes, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What does that tell you? It tells you that me and Elijah are no no different. It says that you and Elijah 
are no different. In other words, Elijah has nothing up on you and you have nothing up on Elijah. He's a man, just like you. And, but he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Verse 18, and he prayed again and the heavens gained rain and the earth produced its fruit. Let me give you one more Old Testament example about the reality of our our prayer life, okay? Let's turn to the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, uh, you have to go past the first and second kings and chronicles, and you get past uh, chronicles, you'll get into uh, Ezra, and then you run into Nehemiah. So I'll give you a moment to get there. Of course, Nehemiah is in the the capital of Sushan. Um, Artaxerxes is the king. Nehemiah had just gotten word they were allowed to go back to Israel. And, but only 50,000 went. That day, Nehemiah just got the report that, yeah, there's 50,000 people back in Jerusalem, but nobody's doing anything. Nothing's getting done. And it grieved Nehemiah so that he comes in before the king in chapter two, and he's sad. Now, he was the, um, the wine taster, if you will. Um, he had the job of anybody wanted to kill the king and poison him. Well, Nehemiah would be first to go. And the rule was you couldn't look sad in the presence of the king, and <laughs> Nehemiah walks in and Body language was all over the place. He's bummed out. He's grieved. And the king picks up on it right away. And the king asks him, he says, verse two, why is your face sad? Are you sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. Then I became dreadfully afraid. Why was he afraid? Because you didn't come into the king's presence that way. And um, Nehemiah knew it. And um, he said, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tomb, lies in waste, its gates are burned with fire. And then this king said to me, what do you want? Well, Nehemiah doesn't know. And this is what I want you to see about prayer in the Old Testament. He said, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, are you catching this? Two things are going on here. This is one of those quickies. I'm in trouble right now. (laughs) So I prayed to the Lord, and I explained to the officer why I was 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. (laughs) Fill in the blank. But the idea of of what's going on here, like Nehemiah, um, we should be able to pray in a moment's notice. We have a wrong attitude about prayer. All too often it's whenever two or three are gathered together. But that's not what the scriptures teach. We are to pray without ceasing. Well, what does that mean? How can you pray without ceasing? I got a job to do and kids to raise. And Well, I think the answer to that is Isaiah 26.10 where it says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You're just walking with the Lord and you're just abiding in the vine. And you never know when you need to shoot up that quickie and say, Lord, help, what do I say? 
So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, and he says, okay, I want money. I want orders from nothing less than you. And I want provisions for wood from Lebanon. And with your authority that I, that I go back. And he says, you coming back? And he says, yeah, when do you want me to come back? All because the Lord answered his prayer and, and um, uh, he was in that place where we ought to be of being ready to talk to the Lord at any given time. Good place for an amen again. And just being ready to be instant in season and out of season. Let's turn to the New Testament for a couple examples. Luke chapter 11. Luke 11 is actually Jesus' teaching about a persistent friend, but before that, we have what people call the Lord's Prayer. But actually, it's not the Lord's Prayer, it's really the disciples' prayer. So in chapter 11, uh, verse 1, it came to pass, he was praying in a certain place. And when he ceased, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray, as John taught his disciples. I would have loved to have seen this, because there was something in the way that the Lord was praying that this disciple said, will you show me how to do that? And he said to him, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In the prayer, there's actually part of the prayer that goes back to our study, realizing that, like the Lord said to Peter, Peter, the devil has asked for you. He wants to sift you. And he says, but I've prayed for you. So part of the Lord's prayer, or the disciples' prayer, is deliver us from the evil one. The reality in that prayer itself that there's spiritual warfare going on. And then, to clarify it, he gives us a parable of the persistent friend. Now remember, this is all in the context of praying. He says, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, uh, how about lending me three loaves of bread? For I have a friend of mine has come to me on his journey. I don't have anything in the house to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, well, leave me alone, don't trouble me. The door is now shut. My kids are in bed. I'm not going to rise to give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as much as he needs. I would love to see the rest of this story. I can just see the guy saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going. I'm going to be doing that all night until you get out of bed. You're supposed to be my friend and get down here. All right. Because of his persistence, he wasn't going to let it go. Now, the Lord is using this as an example of our prayer life. And I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For whoever asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And again, he, he goes on 
and, and talking about if you have a son who asks for bread, from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, Mom, I'm hungry. All right, sit down. I'll feed you. Um, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I like this change here because people ask me, well, how does one receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, how hungry are you for it? And have you asked him for it? How did you receive Christ? You ask him to forgive you of your sins and you ask him to come into your life. It's the same way you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we read this persistent friend. Here's a question. Are you praying for someone right now that doesn't know Christ? Before the study's over, I hope you're going to take on a whole new burden of why you need to be doing that. And if you are, and you don't see any response, let me say this loud and clear. Don't stop. As we see the persistence in here, don't stop. Our prayer, usually for unsaved friends, is, Lord, whatever it takes. I don't care what you have to do to them, but don't let them go to hell. And, Lord, whatever it takes to get them, create the divine appointments, do what's ever necessary, get them in a place that brings them to their knees, whatever, as long as they don't die in their sins. What we call the Lord's Prayer was never intended to be a prayer life. It's, it's sort of a model, but the Lord clarifies us that it wasn't meant to be something that you just say in the denomination that I grew up with. That was the prayer we said every Sunday morning, along with the Apostles' Creed. The Lord, now teaching on prayer, says, when you pray, I don't want you to be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the street, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, I want you to go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And then he says, and when you pray, do not use vain, repetitious prayers as the heathens do. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. I can't remember it anymore. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. Help me out here, old Lutherans. (laughs) Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let this food to us be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Is that it? Whatever it is, it's a vain repetitious prayer. (laughs) As the heathens do, I got one. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let this food to us be blessed. Yeah, that was one. And somebody's saying, you didn't finish it. Next they don't remember it. For they think they will be heard for their many words. We should talk to our Heavenly Father as we would to a friend or to our wife. Imagine talking to your wife this way. Good morning, dear. I love you. What's for breakfast? Have a good day. See you later. And that's all you said ever to her. All day. Next morning, get up. Morning, dear. Love you, what's for breakfast? Have a good day, see you later. And that's all you ever say to your wife. And some of you are thinking, I say more than that. (laughs) 
you would add, what's for supper? <laughs> you know, and we think about that, if that's all you said to your wife, you know, it's a vain repetition. And we don't do that because of uh, the interaction that you have. And yet, that is what exactly, imagine saying the same thing over and over again to our Heavenly Father, and you're going through something completely different. He knows what you're going through. He knows if you're, he knows if you're mad. You might as well be honest with him. Lord, I'm mad right now. I'm as hot as a hornet. And I got mad at somebody, I got in the flesh. You saw it, I blew it, I'm sorry. Help me not do it again. Good place for an amen. It's not a vain, repetitious prayer. It's one-on-one between you uh, and the Lord. How we should and shouldn't pray. First of all, and I'm doing a little sidetrack here. First of all, when we pray, the scriptures are clear on this. We are only to pray in Jesus' name. First Timothy 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God... One mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? The mediator, there's only one. What does that mean? Well, it excludes, if that's the case, it excludes praying to any other person. And in this case, if it's in Roman Catholicism, it would be to Mary and the saints that you would pray to. If you're a Muslim, it would be you would be praying to Allah. Um, if this is so, and there are people praying to someone other that has direct access, because there's only one the Bible teaches, I must address false teaching and um, something that's going to be coming up this Wednesday. Um, I'm so glad to hear about Paul's party and having an alternative for Halloween on the 31st. And um, uh, what's going to happen this Wednesday is in Roman Catholicism, it's called All Saints Day. We call it Halloween. And what's implied is that you pray for the saints. I'm taking this directly from uh, a Catholic website. All Saints Day is a solemn holy day of the Catholic Church celebrated annually on November 1st. The day is dedicated to the saints of the church. That is, all those who have attained heaven. It should not be confused with All Souls Day, which is observed on November 2nd, and is dedicated to those who have died and not yet reached heaven. Now, this is a direct uh, reference to purgatory. On purgatory... All of us would very much like to go straight to heaven when we die. But let's face it, the chances are slim that our souls will be in a perfect state of grace at the moment of our death. It is very likely that we will need to be purified before we can enter into the heavenly kingdom. We will probably have some venial sin or our souls or possibly some unpaid debt, temporal punishment at the moment of our death. Purgatory is a place of purification for those who die in the love of God but who have not fully let go of whatever separated them from that love. 
Before we can enter God's presence at heaven, we must be cleansed of every trace of sin. This cleansing can be very painful in the lower levels of purgatory, depending upon how much purification the soul needs. For this reason, and since the earliest days of the church, Catholic pray for those who have died to ease their transition. Um, They have masses, um, they light candles, and um, uh, as a result of this, it can shorten a person's time in purgatory. I know this bothers people when I talk about it. It's heresy. I usually ask my Catholic friends, when, when Jesus died on the cross for you, how many sins did he die for? All of them? Nine times out of ten, you know what they say? Yeah, they died for all of them. I said, why then do you need a purgatory? And they get this deer in the headlights look as if they never thought it through. There's one mediator between God and man. And there's one sin, um, Hebrews, that when he died, he died once for all. How many of your sins were taken care of on Calvary's cross? All of them. And as far as indulgences go, granted to those in purgatory, indulgences can, can be obtained for yourself or you can obtain them for someone who is in purgatory. Any indulgent can be given to those in purgatory, but there's a, a plenary and a partial indulgence that can only be applied to those in purgatory. Plenary indulgences are only for those in purgatory. On any each day from November 1st to the 8th, devoted, devout Catholics visit a cemetery and they pray for the dead. They pray for the departed. Partial indulgence visits a cemetery and prays for the deceased any day of the year. Now I can really get sidetracked here. We got one house on our block. I mean, have they gone over the top? I mean, from front to back, it's, it's goblins and the most scary, creepy things you could imagine, and it's the whole front of their house. And I mean, it would freak a four-year-old totally right out. And um, of course, this is Halloween. Now, how deceptive is the enemy to take um, the false doctrine and all saints day where you're told to go pray for the dead and turn it into a place where kids get candy for going out and dressing up like goblins. I thank the Lord for the guys that are putting an alternative so that they can still be not left out and still go home with some candy or whatever. And I commend the people in the Sunday school that are doing that. Amen? Okay, but where does it come from? Halloween is all saints day, guys. It's all about purgatory. It's all about praying for the dead. How about the baptism for the dead? In in Mormonism, they believe baptism uh, for the dead. Uh, That's the reason they have the largest uh, genealogy records in the entire world. Nobody has a bigger library of a person's genealogy than the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Why? Well, what happens to people, this is from a Mormon website, what happens to people who die without being taught accepting, accepting baptism in the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints? A Heavenly Father has prepared another chance for them to hear the gospel 
and to choose to accept or reject it. Can I just stop here and interject once to die and then the judgment? And we have a conflict already, and I just read one, one verse. The official church website explains Jesus Christ taught that baptism is essential to the salvation of all who have lived on the earth. And I quote John 3, 5. The answer to that is no, he hasn't. And the thief on the cross was never baptized, and he's in heaven today. Many people, however, have died without being baptized. Others were baptized without proper authority, i.e. only the Mormon Catholic, Mormon uh, Church of Latter-day Saints. Because God is merciful, he has prepared a way for all people to receive the blessing of baptism by performing proxy baptisms in behalf of those who have died. Church members offer their blessings to deceased ancestors. Individuals can then choose to accept or reject what has been done on their behalf. There's an implication here that after a person dies, he still has a chance to be saved. And yet the Bible says once to die and then the judgment. Well, some of us, when we talk about prayer, let's make it personal. I've prayed, and some of my prayers aren't answered. And I've prayed in Jesus' name. And I didn't get what I prayed for. How come? Well, James answers that. Now you're a born-again Christian. I've been praying for something, and you didn't receive it. Well, in James chapter 4, verse 2, it says, You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss that you might spend it on your own pleasure. You know, if a parent would give a child everything he ever wanted any time he asked, wouldn't we say that that child's gonna grow up to be a spoiled little brat? How many times have you said no when you said, Mom and Dad, can I do this? No. Then if you ask Dad, then what does he do? Well, he goes, ask Mom. <laughs> and Well, Mom said yes. Well, I said no. And um, if we understand that our human parents don't give us everything we want, I think of Paul. Lord, I got the sword on the side. And he prayed three times. Lord, please deliver me of this um, affliction thrown in the flesh from the devil. And he prayed three times and finally the Lord says, no, not going to. Paul, in your weakness, you're made strong. What does Paul do? Well, thanks a lot, Lord. No, he says, therefore, I will gladly rejoice. God, talk to me. And he says, it's good for me to be humble. By, by the way, this is right after he comes back from heaven. You heard me. He just got back from heaven. And he could have wrote a book. He could have went on tour. He could have done a lot of things. What I saw in heaven. But he doesn't. He says, because of the multitude of revelation that was given to me, I received the sword in the flesh. To do what? To keep him usable. To keep him humble. And so he says, I've learned that um, in my weakness, that's what I made strong. All right, let's begin to close this up this morning. What happens to a person who dies 
and like uh, in purgatory or in Mormonism, they desire to pray after they die. Let's turn to Luke chapter 11, just turn a couple pages over to Luke 16. This is not a parable, even though it's titled a parable. Parables do not have proper names attributed to them. This one does with the man named Lazarus. We read there was a certain rich man who was clothed, verse 19, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Then there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's what the Lord referred to as paradise with the thief on the cross. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, well, we just learned something. He died, but he's not dead. And being in torment in hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. He's conscious, he's aware, and he's in torment. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. Let me just stop and say it doesn't mean if you're rich you're going to hell and if you're poor you're going to heaven. It's just that those who have much have more temptations. And the Lord says he's chosen the poor to be rich in faith. And now he's comforted, but you're tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to go from here to there can't, nor can those from here go to you. All right, the finality. What's he doing here? I would say that he was, it says begging, but it's actually a prayer that he would be somehow comforted. This chamber no longer exists by the way that Abraham is, and Jesus emptied it when he rose, was the first ones, rose from the dead. He says, then I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. You see, I have, I have five brothers, that he may, we would say, witness to them lest they would come to this place of torment. Interesting answer, Abraham said to them, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he said, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, the Bible, neither will they be persuaded, though one would raise from the dead. In hell, this man will be until the end of the thousand years. He's there right now this morning as I speak. He'll be resurrected and he will stand before the great white throne judgment and his whole life will then be judged. Every deed that he ever done in his life is all recorded in a book. And that's a reality, Revelation chapter 20. Today, People like, and I'm going to name names again, Rob Bell, 
who wrote the book Love Wins, Brian McLaren, A Generous Orthodoxy, believe in what we call universalism. Well, what's that, Dwight? That's the belief that a loving God could and never would send a person to an eternal hell. At men's prayer yesterday, um, I got personal with, with the guys. I said, you guys know I wasn't here Wednesday night because um, uh, I was up graveside in Kadat, Wisconsin, um, burying my brother Joe and with cousins and family members that were there. And I experienced something I never experienced before, and I've been in ministry for over 40 years, and I never had the experience. And it gave me a whole new insight about the deception of the human heart. When people think it through, and they come up with the reality, would God really ever send a person to hell? Well, God sends nobody to hell. We have free will. The Bible says, John 3, that we're already all condemned. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn, I came to save. And now the ball's in our court. We can choose to accept the free gift that only comes through one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, or we can choose to reject it. Now, if we choose to reject it, it's with the idea that And this is, um, the Bible says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We go on to read, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise that some call it slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all should come to repentance. One more place, Romans chapter one. And we will close with this this morning. And that's the idea of the wrestling match we find ourselves in. Romans 1 verse 24 tells us that God is in a wrestling match with every non-believer. Or for that matter, for any person who's never said yes and accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There comes a place with the wrestling where you can finally get to the place where the Lord says, okay, have it your way. And he stops wrestling with you. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness. Well, he gave them up after doing everything he could to prove that he exists just because of creation. He says, you're without excuse. There's no such thing as an atheist. You say, oh, I'm an atheist. No, you're not. The Bible says you're not, just because of a sunset, creation. You are without excuse. There is a God, and you don't want to come to him because you don't want him to be the Lord of your life. You want to be the Lord of your life, and you're not being honest, because that's what the Bible says, and it trumps whatever you might say. But the wrestling is given up, and God says, he gave them over to uncleanness, the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than a creator, American idol. We have people that we idolize as human beings 
rather than worshiping the creator of the universe who is blessed forevermore. And for this reason, the next step, God gave them over to vile passions. For even their woman exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their heirs, which is due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. What does that mean? He quit fighting with them. The Holy Spirit will work on you and work on you, tug at your heart, until you finally say, you get so hard-hearted, he quits striving with you, and then he gives you over. And there is a danger in that. In men's prayer, we're making our way through the Bible. We happen to be in Leviticus. Happened to read yesterday, what's an abomination to the Lord? And um, I thought it was interesting timing because it says it's an abomination for a man to lay with another man. It's an abomination for a man to have sexual relations with um, an animal. I know this is hard to hear and I know it's gross. And yet the, the scriptures are very clear and very few people actually want to address it. So I thought I would make it personal and um, talk about closing, about hell and the reality of hell. You know what I used to think about hell before I was saved? Yeah, I'll probably go to hell, but I don't care. I'm gonna hang with Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Morrison. We're gonna party hardy. And I really believe that. Or when it's over, it's over. That's it. You just cease to exist. Well, the Bible teaches none of that. This week Thursday, I stood at my brother's graveside and I was asked to say some final words. The pause was a lot longer than that because I didn't know what to say. I prayed for my brother and our family members my whole adult life. And with all my heart, and this is the verse where it gets deceptive, when it says the heart is deceptively deceitfully wicked above all things. My heart was wrestling, saying there's gotta be some way he made it. Gotta be some way in my heart. It was saying he made it somehow, some way, last minute. But the word of God tells me something completely different. And I stood there in conflict before I said anything because I was having a wrestling match. And for the first time, I understood why people write books on universalism. They don't know the word of God and they are deceived by their heart, saying a loving God would never do that. A loving God never would. The world is already condemned. And if we harden our heart to the Holy Spirit's wooing, and you die in your sins, and as I stood there, I finally paused, what could I say? I said to my cousins who were there and the guy who had dug the hole, I said, I have no certainty of my brother's salvation. And it was hard for me to put those words out there. He left nothing as far as, I'm not talking about material things, but living the alternative lifestyle his whole life, warded it all to another gay man who was married to another gay person. 
And knowing that, and knowing what my heart was wrestling with, I could only make that statement. Mom, Dad, all my other brothers and sisters prayed and talked with him about Jesus Christ our whole life. And he never made a confession and accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And I had to deal with it, and I didn't want to, but the reality of it was there. I don't listen to young preachers today. I find very few of them have anything to say except the social gospel. Oh, there's some. I like the old guys, the the McGee's. But in closing, this is going to sting a little bit, but I had to go back to Spurgeon to get what preaching really was like when people mock, well, that's a fire and brimstone message. I haven't heard a fire and brimstone message in years. And I had to go back to Spurgeon to get um, him talking to himself. I'm going to close with some Spurgeon quotes, but before I do, let me put it in this context. I heard this story years ago. Imagine you're on a highway, and all of a sudden, um, you see a guy waving his hands, and a bridge has just gone out, a 300-foot drop. And you pull over because you see the guy waving his hands. And he says, go down the road, warn people. This is a 300-foot drop. Anybody that comes up here, they're going to die instantly. So there he went back and he started waving down cars. And some stopped. He was able to talk to him. He said, the bridge out. If you go any farther, it's dark. You're going to go right in. And some stopped and some didn't. And that's the analogy. When it comes to the teaching of uh, Jesus talking about demons that are so powerful and they have one goal and that is to steal, kill, and destroy and we take that lightly, well, I got rebuked by Spurgeon because he's rebuking himself for being too fluffy when it comes to talking about heaven and hell. I would encourage you to Google this. Charles Cogin's quotes about hell, A to Z. I only picked three or four of them out. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprepared for. Quote one. If any of you should ask me for um, an epitaph of the Christian religion, I would say it in one word. Prayer. How does this one come out? Only by prayer and fasting. Prayer. Live and die without prayer, and you will pray long enough when you get to hell, but to no avail. Spurgeon hard on himself. Ho, ho, Sir Spurgeon. That's him talking to himself. You're too delicate to tell the men that he is ill. You hope to heal the sick without their knowing it. You therefore flatter them. And what happens? They laugh at you. They dance upon their own graves, and at last they die. Your delicacy is cruelty. 
Your flatteries are poison. You're a murderer. Shall we keep men in fool's paradise? Shall we lull them into soft slumber from which they will awake in hell? Are we to become helpers of their damnation by our smooth speeches? In the name of God, we will not. The last one. When thou diest, thy soul will be tormented alone. That will be a hell for it. But at the day of judgment, thy body will join thy soul, and then thou wilt have twin hells, thy soul sweating drops of blood, and thy body suffered with agony. In fire, exactly that which we have on earth, thy body will lie like asbestos, like forever, unconsumed all their veins, roads for the feet of pain to travel on, ever Nerve, a string on which the devil shall forever play his diabolical tune of hell's unattainable lament. In closing, I don't know how to close this morning. And the soberness on your face is exactly what I wanted to see this morning. And um, the reality that if we don't warn them, who's going to in the times in which we live? And if we don't tell them, there's eternal consequences to pay. I was flippant, as flippant as you could get if somebody said, uh, you know, if you die, you're gonna go to hell. Well, okay, I'll just party on. That was my mentality. What uh, the church needs today is what Jesus told his disciples. How do you deal with this demonic realm? If hell was created for the the devil and his angels, how do we prepare people not to be there? Two words, prayer and the knowledge of this book. My final words is don't ever let your heart trick you. Your heart is deceitful. And it'll tell you no, a, a God wouldn't do this. Well, my Bible says he will. And there's people that you and I know that are there right now. And they're gonna be there forever and ever and ever. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, I know this morning's message was uncomfortable, for many unpleasant, but it's the truth of your word. Lord, as we make our way through the scriptures and we see the disciples asking questions, why was this so difficult? And you explained to them that to have a better understanding of the reality of heaven and hell and why you came, that um, it takes a prayer and a knowledge of your word. Lord, help us not be proud or arrogant at a time like this and help us consider the reality that when a person dies, um, there is no second chances. And um, it is eternity with you or eternity separated from you. Lord, your word tells us that we're to save some through fire. What does that mean? That means that we tell them the reality of hell so much that they would actually be scared to death and that they would be one through the fear of what lies ahead. I know your word says it's the goodness of the Lord that leads a man to repentance, but you also say save some through fire. Lord, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be planted in the hearts of those who need to hear it and they would not play the fool and try to explain away that it won't happen to them. 
So go before the rest of this day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.